Welcome to another episode of The Practical CMO with your host, Mark Corona. Mark's passion is to help leadership teams accelerate revenues and profits using best growth practices and to improve the value and performance of marketing in their businesses. Well, hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Practical CMO. And this is going to be, a, a, I think, a really fun episode to dive into because um, I've got Dan Davis with us as uh, my guest today. And Dan is a long-term industry leader, and he's editor-in-chief of The Fabricator, which is one of the most popular and farthest reaching of uh, all manufacturing and industrial magazines. And Dan's viewpoint on the industry is pretty uh, unique because of where he sits, and he's going to share a lot of that with us today. We're going to start out talking about how unique or not the manufacturing market might be today. So, you know, as we look across different markets, what we see is that different markets have different levels of marketing maturity, and they use different ways of going to market. They use different metrics of success. And across different markets, we've seen lots of variation in terms of how the role of marketing is actually viewed. I think, Danny, probably even within manufacturing, we've seen that, right? We'll get, get into that a little bit later on here. But in today's program, we're going to do a deep dive into the manufacturing businesses and do a temperature check on their overall health and growth prospects. So more specifically, we're going to focus on opportunities which are created by a narrow, narrow, narrow definition of a target customer segment, and then the application of what we're going to call modern marketing technology to develop a core of business in those segments. You know, you might call this personalized marketing concept was first introduced uh, in a book by Don Peppers as one-to-one -one marketing back probably over 20 years ago. But in those days, it was a great theory, great strategy, but there wasn't the technology available to actually implement one-to-one -one marketing. Today there is, and that's really an opportunity as Dan and I see it for uh, manufacturers. So Dan, welcome to the program today. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm glad you and I have got a chance to get together and, and do this because I think uh, for all the conversations you and I have had, we've we've come across some things that we think are pretty unique and certainly our best practices. And but I'd like to start out a little bit having you characterize today's market for manufacturers. I mean, you know, through uh, Fabricators and Manufacturers Association, you've got a broad, broad set of constituents that are part of that group. Um, but how would you characterize today's market? I would call it hot. Or if you remove the pandemic, I think the manufacturing segment in the U.S. has been on an incredible roll probably since the days after the Great Recession. Now, to say just to remove the pandemic is quite the ask. But if you take out that shutdown and even coming out of the pandemic, things really picked up speed incredibly quickly again. And, you know, what's feeding current activity uh, are the results of that pandemic. The supply chain uh, issues that arose uh, when when China, which arguably had b become the world's manufacturing spot, uh, when they shut down, people couldn't get stuff. Right. So that ties in with a consistent theme of reshoring, which people have been using that term probably since about the mid 2000s, as they saw a lot of high volume, low mix type manufacturing move overseas. So you have that going on right now. One of the things I always like to kind of highlight for our community of uh, people who we define as anybody that cuts bins, forms, or welds metal is that, you know, 
if there is tumult in the world, change is occurring, fabricators are behind that happening. Mm -hmm. They make that possible. Yeah. So, you know, the, the examples I use and you don't, some of these segments don't get a lot of uh, coverage or discussion because I think in a way, like manufacturing itself, people take it for granted, but the tremendous upheaval that's occurred in, in food manufacturing, Yeah. Uh, uh, you have the old school, like P&G and some of the other consumer goods companies where they know variation of product sells a uh, perfect example being Oreos, mm -hmm. you know, you know, pumpkin spice flavored Oreos. The, yeah. Know, Five-year-old Dan Davis would never have thought that would exist. <laughs> but, you know, gluten-free foods that is matured with the changing of Americans' diets or, you know, yeah. not even Americans, but the world, people and looking to live more healthy lives. Right. You know, those foods have to be made. These new products have new lines that have to be built. Trucks are built to support delivery of these new supply chains, these new routes, it's just never ending. Uh, you want to talk about electric cars, electrification. Mm -hmm. Certainly headlines suggest that initial move, particularly in North America, will be a little bit slower than people anticipated. Right. The rest of the world's going there. And yeah. that's the ultimate destination. So right. from the standpoint of fabricators, you know, you know, obviously the cars are a discussion unto itself, but you have charging stations, you have at home charging right batteries that need to be made you know yeah. these changes in society have tentacles that need to be supported by manufacturing right and i think one of the things we have even yet to see come is the, a shakeout from the infrastructure bill that was approved yeah. a couple of years ago you know those funds work their way into projects one one and a half two years down the line so right. I, we, we have yet to see that there's a lot going on and a lot of opportunity particularly on our side of the fence, the metal fabricators, mm -hmm. that it's just been a, a, an incredible roller coaster ride. And yeah. certainly uh, there have been dips for some, some people in our marketplace. I heard a little bit of that in the early fall, late summer, but the example is tied to a specific uh, industry segment where, you, yeah. you know, the example I heard was in Wisconsin, people were having a little bit of slowdown with some of their generator customers, you know, providing the housings, providing the bases on which those giant generators sit. And, you know, as you got further into talking about it, you discover that it was more of a supply chain issue in that generator manufacturers had backups in their own retail flow in the sense they couldn't get people to actually install these things. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it wasn't really a reflection of people buying it and people sitting on wallets, but yeah. a reflection of the lack of labor available out there in the market. Yeah. So, Certainly people have maybe slowed down, but that's the beauty of the metal fabricating businesses is that if you have a diverse customer base, hopefully you have other people to offset yeah. the slowdown. Yeah. So in summary, things are going really well. Yeah. Well, thanks for that characterization. You know, I, I would disagree with you just on one part of that. And that is when you talk about pumpkin spice Oreos, <laughs> that would not, not ever be anything that would attract me. Now, the thin Oreos they introduced, those are killer, right? But <laughs> well, I, it's just the amount of different Oreos. I yeah, I'm just, yeah, I know. Uh, you know, that was a lesson early on where I, I didn't do a whole lot of studying with marketing, but, you know, they really understand that to kind of juice activity amongst a kind of a state and long-term brand is that, you know, you just shake things up on a regular basis and it gets yeah. people's attention, good or bad, right? You know, yeah. pumpkin spice or thin. Yeah. But yeah, I've had the thin ones, definitely. <laughs> I think your comment on 
there is some segment variation in how healthy the segments are. I think it's really true. You know, I've got some manufacturers I've been business with and, you know, they came out of the pandemic with some record performance, right? Uh, you know, beat their revenue goals for the year considerably. But then the spring, a couple of them just feel like they just fell off a cliff that, and they, they weren't looking for it. They didn't see it coming, but all of a sudden their uh, order flows dried up and, you know, they were like, what the heck happened? We were just, we were doing so well, right? Right. But I think that's really linked to different segments and what might be going on specifically. Maybe it's key components that are missing. Maybe it's something about uh, distribution or demand. Yeah. It's probably different segment by segment. But I think the point that you raise, which I think we're going to explore more, is that you know when you know explicitly what segments you want to sell and market to, then you can develop more effective strategies to actually build a book of business in those segments. So right. let me shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about some of the manufacturing executives and their view of what's going on. So um, if you polled CEOs or heads of marketing, heads of sales within manufacturing firms, Dan, you know, what do you think they would say their top challenges today? Yeah, it's it's labor. It's been that way you know, I've worked for the Fabricator Magazine and the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association since 2003. And during that time, there was like a two to three year window where I think a majority of the talk was about the future of manufacturing in this country because such a major wave was taking place as a lot of it was moving to China. Well, you know, that's come full circle. Yeah. And with the exit of the baby boomers, and post-pandemic, the struggle to find workers against the backdrop of everyone looking for workers, so not just manufacturers. It, that's the number one thing on their yeah. mind because they have opportunity to grow the business, mm-hmm. to be more profitable, to make, you know, reach out to new customers, right? And you know, kind of fortify a, a brighter future but they don't necessarily have the people there to take advantage of. Yeah. We'll talk about a little bit more like where they're spending money, but that's the backdrop against of which a lot of these other decisions are being made. Yeah. And I think when people talk about labor availability, they think sort of top of mind, they think, you know, the folks that work in operations or plant and in the plants, right. I've noticed a lot of manufacturers have challenges recruiting leadership talent. You know, and uh, so it's not just labor, plant labor, but it's actually executives who can run various functions within their organizations and and do it well. There's a lot of people that are sort of at that point in life where they're they're exiting the workforce, a lot of the the leadership is. And, you know, it's hard to replace that with experienced talent sometimes. Yeah, the metal fabricating business, the people who are good at it have to learn to tame chaos. Because the, the very nature of it is high mix, low volume. Yeah. So they're dealing with constant shifts in priorities, hot orders, new customers, heaven forbid, rework. You know, yeah. this stuff, you know, complicates an already complicated business. Yeah. And to get people who are familiar with that is just difficult. And yeah. oftentimes when people talk about the inability to find workers, you know, what they're really not saying is the inability to find younger workers or youthful workers, if you will, who'll stick around for a while and learn the way they do business. Yeah. And you mentioned leadership. 
I can't tell you the number of people in this industry who literally worked their way up. I mean, it's a classic American success tale yeah. where they came in to do like a, a kind of a, a entry level job and 10, 15 years down the road, you know, they're key leadership for the company. Yeah. And I think it's, it's an they, industry. They, 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 the, the stuff they learn at these companies is not taught in a school. And you can say that about a lot of things, but particularly for the metal fabricating industry. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, interviewing workers in some of the firms I've worked with and it's like, let's, you know, tell me about your career path. You know, their career path is exactly what you just summarized, right? They started out, you know, in shipping and then they moved to this and then they learned how to use a certain production technology and then they became workstream manager. And I mean, it does, I think the industry does present a lot of career opportunities for people if they're willing to sort of prove that they're a high value worker, right? And they yeah, it's uh, in a lot of the leadership for these companies, they have the training, not only from the real world perspective, but also maybe formal schooling. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, there's a significant uh, portion of leadership that really didn't do the four-year college route. You know, mm -hmm. they came through either a, a vocational school or learned it on the job, got experience and perhaps supplemented their experience with schooling. And then in most instances, that was paid for by the manufacturer metal mm -hmm. fabricating company to get to the point they are. Yeah. So to me, it, it's the variety that makes metal fabricating exciting also makes it very challenging for someone to come in from the outside. Yeah. But for those people involved with it, there's an awful lot of opportunity for them to grow and find something that they really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And when I say what they enjoy, it could be the type of fabricating being done. It could be just the people they work with. could be the location, you know, yeah. somebody that loves the outdoors would probably love to be a metal fabricator in the middle of South Dakota, you right. know, or, you know, Louisiana <laughs> or something like that. It just and, they, and there are firms out there, right? Yeah. And these, yeah, like, these, yeah, these so skills you... travel. Someone once told me, if you know how to weld, you, you'll never go without a paycheck. And I think yeah. there's, some truth to that. I you think know? that's right. Yeah. And for me, the, the thing is always to remember is that you're not going to be Howard Hughes. You're not going to go out and buy a Ferrari that first year. Right. It's the first step to a really interesting and potentially lucrative. But, but yeah. and I think the, the current, the younger generation understands that. I think it would be the correct modifier might be fruitful in mm -hmm. the sense that it could be monetary, but also could be very fulfilling because mm -hmm. what most fabricators tell me is that at the end of the day, they feel good that they've created something. Yeah. And yeah. It, that's kind of uh, something, you know, not to get all soft, warm and feely, but it, you know, it sounds very comforting to me that, yeah. you know, that to live each day with purpose like that and get paid to do it to me is a kind of yeah. a, a good place to be. Yeah. They have, they have, they get tangible feedback about the things that they've worked on. Right. Which a lot of right. people in a lot of industries never have that opportunity. Right. That can be very uh, rewarding to sort of get that kind of feedback. But hey, so we talked about labor and one of the challenges of labor is that, that um, there's only so much of it. And, and a lot of manufacturers saw the labor availability issue looming and start investing in production technologies to help mitigate that sort of constraint to business growth. In your view, what are the technologies, the back office, the production technologies, which are really hot right now? And then I want to talk about the front end of their business and what technologies are hot. But, you know, let's just start with the, the um, production technologies. Where are the investments going today, Dan? 
Yeah, for the for the longest time, the trend toward more laser cutting has been quite evident and really ne never kind of slowed down. For those not familiar with metal fabricating, laser cutting allows a company to cut parts out of sheet metal and, and even now today out of tube and other 3D type shapes uh, without the need to invest in tooling. So mm -hmm. a lot of the work that went to China during the early 2000s were related to, you know, stamping that, you know, the high volume, low mix stuff that was not too complicated. That stuff was sent to China because it was cheaper. A, the companies paid their workers hardly anything. B, they got the tooling made there in some instances, and it was extremely uh, less expensive than here in the States. So now laser cutting appears. And instead of investing in tooling to knock out this two-dimensional shape, they're cutting this stuff. Mm -hmm. And from there, the roller coaster took off. So you're going through a couple changes in technology, but today you've got laser cutting machines pumping out tremendous volumes of uh, two-dimensional uh, shapes. And uh, that has put pressure on the rest of the metal fabricating operation in these companies. These are larger scale metal fabricating yeah. companies. Yeah. But then again, these are the ones that probably have the highest profile and are probably growing at the greatest rate. So as that pressure is being applied, they can't find people. They need to figure out ways to do things without necessarily having those people. And that's where automation comes in. And right. that's been the big trend. Yeah. That's where a lot of money is going to. Yeah. Whether it be automation related to moving material from one, from cutting to bending, cutting and bending to uh, welding, then welding to delivery, you know, how to minimize the amount of time spent doing that, because the faster they're able to get parts out, the faster they can get paid. Yeah. Faster they get paid, they're more, more cash on hand, which helps them during slowdowns. But also that movement of materials considered non-value that, you know, the yeah. customer is not paying for you to right. move that material. They're paying you to create something out of a 2D yeah. piece of raw metal. Yeah. So raw material, the actual fabricating activities, uh, robots to help with bending at the press break, robots to help weld join parts. They have the emergence of collaborative robots, which are not necessarily the big industrial robots that you have to build fencing around to ensure that these robots don't knock the head off of a, of a, of a human. Right. Uh, these collaborative robots are designed with force sensors to if they come in contact with a human, they're not moving that fast. They're not that big. And the contact with a human will uh, result in the robot just shutting down. They're yeah. deemed safe and you can collaborate with this robot. Just that, right. that's the name. Yeah. But uh, the, the amazing thing about that is that you, you're seeing small shops and, and the world of metal fabricating is really built on the back of small shops. The beauty of this industry is a lot of these small shops become big shops. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 40% of our 52,000 circulation for the magazine, The Fabricator, are shops with 19 or fewer employees, mm. you know. But these shops are now kind of taking the time to investigate these collaborative robots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're affordable. They can be leased. They're not complicated to program. Yeah. So, you know, these are all elements that are working their way into these businesses yeah. to the point where some of the larger shops are actually assigning uh, an engineer or a team of engineers as their like uh, automation assault team where mm -hmm. they'll go out and like look for opportunities to where they can automate low value menial work and have their people focus on more high value activities. Yeah. yeah. So it really boils down to 
people having the time to focus in on those areas yeah. to where automation and robotics can kind of uh, add efficiencies to processes that enable them to make the most of their uh, human yeah. labor. Well, and, you know, you're talking about uh, sort of production technologies and what you're articulating, Dan, I think is sort of a fairly traditional path that large entities kind of start with a technology, but as technology costs decrease, smaller entities can access those same technologies. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, here's an, an analog from uh, finance, right? It used to be that only the largest banks could offer mobile deposits and, you know, mobile support for their customers. But then, you know, people started offering, you know, platforms that even smallest banks could offer mobile deposits. It became a kind of level the playing field, to so to speak, right? And yeah. I think you're talking about that in the back office. I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of how, I mean, manufacturers are really good, typically at operational excellence, continuous improvement, investing in back office technologies or production technologies. But what about the front end of their businesses, you know, the marketing and sales sides of their businesses? Do you think they think about that as in the same respect that they think about their back office investments? Not at all. If you run into people with a sales or marketing title in a manufacturing company, odds are it's a pretty big operation where, you know, I would say maybe 200 employees or more mm -hmm. for a majority, as I mentioned, you know, the smaller shops. The, uh, the, the focus really is on operations. And when it comes to marketing and, and sales, the phrase word of mouth is something I hear a whole bunch even today. Mm -hmm. uh, what has kind of worked its way into that word of mouth, though, is the Internet. And they're doing basic stuff. I think a, a smaller shop with some type of sales and some type of interest in marketing sales, probably doing Google AdWords. Mm -hmm. But outside that, I can't really say there's a whole lot more to it. Yeah. The, the, I will say, though, that the, the focus now on the front office is occurring. And maybe the, given time, some of this automation, focus, experience, decision-making will kind of work its way, or sophisticated decision-making, yeah. will yeah. work its way toward the sales and marketing function. Yeah. Right now, the one thing I see a lot of shops wanting to focus on is like estimating processing sales orders. Mm -hmm. How can they expedite that, do it correctly to ensure both the customer's wishes, but yeah. also at the same time, ensure profitability. Yeah. You know, how can they do that without having the 25-year-old veteran touch everything, check everything? Yeah. You know, well, can you only take that institutional knowledge yeah. and, and kind of incorporate that into some type of estimation program, you know, sales response effort without relying on 20 spreadsheets that, you know, that 25-year veteran right. kind of kept his notes in. There's really uh, some awesome software alternatives to help out in many instances that you don't have to purchase. And th that's kind of interesting, the new generation. They don't have an issue with subscriptions. Mm -hmm. You know, they do it for entertainment. And, you know, these software companies are offering these increasingly cloud-based. I think the models are coming together. Yeah. The younger generations are more used to working with digital interfaces, uh, subscription models. So I think maybe that trend will kind of culminate with what we're talking about with more of a focus to improve efficiencies in the front yeah. office as well. You know, your, your comment about um, kind of the status of most, I mean, I, I think most manufacturers, you could say, okay, you know, yeah, 
they probably say, well, we, we go to trade shows, you know, industry conferences, we got a website and we've got sales collateral and they probably, most of them are pretty much defined marketing as doing those three things, right? even though they might not be doing those three things well, right? I know a lot right. of companies I work with, they're like, they may spend half their marketing investment on trade shows. And then when you dig into it and you say, well, you know, how does that paying off for you? And they're, they go, well, what do you mean? And it's like, well, what are your sales per square foot? If you've got a booth, right? How many leads do you get? Are they, how do you, you know, what's your conversion rate? How many of those turn into customers? What's the lifetime value of the leads that you acquire at a conference, right? They don't really take it and do the deeper analysis about whether there's true payback on those efforts. But even their websites, I mean, you said some of them, you do Google ads. It's like, I, my, my perception is that most of the websites are pretty basic, right? In terms yeah. of what they do. Everybody has one, but it doesn't mean that they're all equally um, effective or efficient in terms of delivering um, new business to the, you know, to the organization. Right. They basically feel like they have to have one. And in many instances, you can tell if you do enough poking around on a company's website, you can tell when the consultant was no longer employed because that's usually when that update stop. Yeah, you know, right. you know, two years ago, there's no, there hadn't been any new news in two years. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's always a dead giveaway, isn't it? Like when the last news article was several years ago. Yeah, I was thinking about one of our columnists, Caleb Cunningham, I think is his name. He works at OSH Cut, and he writes about, you know, kind of the digital world as it relates to fabricating. And mm -hmm. he wrote an entire column on digital marketing, and he's a sharp individual. He gets it. And, you know, applying everything you talked about in terms of like trade shows to like digital marketing. So, you know, that sophistication is coming around. And I, I think it's just it's a matter of having the right people ask the right questions, no matter what channels you use. Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably the the takeaway from a discussion about that. Yeah, it can be very fruitful. But then again, you know, I've heard stories about companies just spending upwards of like ten to twenty thousand dollars a month on Google AdWords. And you know, that, that's not going to get any less expensive. No. And with the incoming changes with Google, the use of cookies is, is coming to an end. Right. You know, it's, it's like electric cars. I don't know. I can't tell you when, but it's yeah. coming. So yeah, you, you, can, know, you can sometimes project where the market's going to go with some level of confidence, right? Yeah. And yeah. even internally, we're, you know, we're talking about the use of consultants or vendors, other companies that specialize in artificial intelligence tools to help us kind of grow our own community, mm -hmm. not only from a subscription base to, but digitally but using information crumbs that people leave on the internet, you know, yeah. we're able to try, Hey, they went to the sporting goods store. So they must have an interest in outdoors activities, perhaps, you know, the bots follow and find out, Oh, they do work with their hands. You know, they're a welder. Yeah. And then, you kind of pull them in and we're able to maybe get a uh, contact information and we can kind of market to them. Yeah. It's uh, the expectation of privacy with the coming generation is just not, they don't have as many qualms, I think, as the older generation. They don't mind being marketed to. Well, the issue is, is that there's a lot of stuff being marketed to them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, actually, I think Europeans are much more concerned about personal privacy than people in the U.S. are, right? I, yeah, it really is a thing. Yeah, it really is a thing. Yeah. You know, and you've talked about digital marketing. You talked about cloud-based technologies. One of the areas I've seen um, cloud technologies be adopted is when manufacturers decide to use account-based marketing. And you, you can go out and buy the technology and implement it yourself. I 
don't recommend that most companies even think about that because there's no real value in running it yourself. You can access those services, though, from third parties who um, base them in the cloud. And that's where you can get a lot closer to what you just talked about, which your example is really one of of one-to-one marketing where you get to know the individual and their interests and their tendencies. And, you know, I I think one of the things I've noticed is that when you know exactly who you want to talk to, who you want to market to, right? You're very so segment specific and even individual specific, and you can craft an offer you can put it in front of them on an individual or, or personalized basis, you know, that can generate tremendous success for any organization. I think you and I know a couple of businesses that have done that pretty successfully. And if you look at their revenue year over year, really outperform their peers. So it appears that if you put that whole picture together and not just think about the back office technology, but you think about your, I'll call them go-to-market technologies, You've got some yeah. opportunities to do some things different and really differentiate your business and and yeah. outperform. I mean, it, you know, it really, the middle fabricating business is about solving people's problems. And if you're able to speak to specific problems that a potential customer might have, whether it's finding someone that can do this part for cheaper or maybe looking for a little bit quicker turnaround, and especially for their segment they happen to be in, maybe it's they need enclosures made, or maybe they need thick plate to be able to speak to those specific people without relying on a generic message. Cause you know, a, you've got the battle of the inbox with all these incoming digital messages Yeah, and B the stuff that's auto-generated it's, it doesn't connect. So as you describe anything you can do to kind of make that appeal, that offer much more tangent to the person receiving it is by far the very best strategy yeah. you can do. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you one other technology question, Dan, and that's about, you know, using e-commerce technologies to sell um, products and services, you know, manufacturers doing that, you know, most manufacturers, I know, I know some in the lighting industry and, you know, they hate those, um, they can't screen out effectively you know, people who go, oh, can you make me a, a, a lighting fixture that looks like this on a you know one, one basis? Right. But, but then there are those that are like, maybe you're in the um, heat exchanger business and you've got a heat exchanger that you could actually replicate and sell on a small unit basis. You know, mm-hmm. you talked really about sort of a large variety of very unique units, but what if you had a small variety of lookalike units? You know, do you think that's right. An opportunity manufacturers will come around to if you kind of take a three to five year view of the end of the future? Yeah, I, I think it depends on where they see opportunity. But surprisingly enough, I think there's a, a, a fair portion of companies of a variety of sizes. I think larger companies, obviously, customers may push them in that direction to have a, a kind of a direct digital connection where they can come in, log in and gain that transparency into the manufacturing operation of their metal fabricating supplier. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that is uh, in many instances, depending on how large those customers are, they pretty much kind of want that. Yeah. So, you know, people being pulled in that direction, I think that on the other end of, it, as you described, smaller companies with that sort of uh, product offering, without a doubt, I know from even the smallest companies, having something that may be a, a limited product line, 
or product line with a lot of variation that is almost akin to uh, job shop work anyway, yeah. being sold through a digital uh, interface, you know, that provides a nice foundation for the variations of the job shop work yeah. uh, or the seasonality associated with some of that job yeah. shop work. Yeah, I've seen it incredibly enough. A lot of uh, the, the examples that come to my head, aftermarket parts for trucks, side-by-sides, yeah, what, yeah. what they call them. Being in this business is one of the exciting things you learn is that these industries that you had no idea how large they were, snowmobiles, or as mm-hmm. uh, I've met a person from Alaska where it's serious business, snow machines. You know, it's not a recreational activity for those folks, but people down in the lower 40, lower 48, they're not doing this in Arizona, but, uh, you know, in the Midwest, mm-hmm. they invest in these things because they're like, they're hot rods almost. They, they want to yeah. soup them up. Yeah. So, you know, these companies sell directly to the consumer. For some of them, it's bigger business. For other people, it's a new business that they're hoping to grow. Yeah. When it comes to e-commerce, I, I think more manufacturers are probably interested in probably doing something like that if they aren't already. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of that is the first step of them recognizing the importance of the the, the digital outpost mm-hmm. or, or worldwide web. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to see even what I would consider basic companies attempt to do stuff like that. Yeah. Great. You know, so if I if I take our conversation today and try to net it out, Dan, I would say, you know, lots of progress in manufacturing and back office investments related to automation, right? Both production technologies and workflow technologies. Some initiative in uh, investing in the front end of their businesses, but that's still relatively immature relative against what they tend to invest in the back office of their operations. But you've got to know what it is you want to manufacture and who it is that you want to develop as a buyer. I mean, right. that's good advice, regardless of kind of what what your technology environment looks like. And it sounds like you'd be you you kind of recommend that they spend more attention on the front end of their business as a way of growing and differentiating than perhaps the industry is as a whole today. Yeah, I, I think the bottom line diversification is always a good bet, you know, whatever you can do to do that. If you're in that growth mindset, I mean, that's the way to approach it. Yeah. You got, you got to have a plan, you know, hope is not a plan. I I've heard that once from a a company leader. I apply it more to the sports teams I follow. Yeah. It seems like (laughs) it's like hopes the game plan going into the Sunday. Yeah. uh, It's applicable to a lot of things. You know, so having a, a understanding of, you know, what you offer, who you can offer that to and where those people might be. Right. Uh, that, that's the way to get the ball rolling, to move ahead. Yeah. Hey, Dan, thanks for joining me today. This is um, a great conversation. We covered a lot of bases, but in the end, I think driving towards this, um, how important it is for manufacturers to really understand where they want to go and who they want to uh, cultivate as customers is pretty important. Otherwise, you just sort of feel like you're taking whatever comes in. And you're, and you're being reactive and not proactive in the marketplace. That may feel like hope, right? Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. That can get a little frustrating because right. you don't feel like you're in control. And I'm not sure how yeah. much we can be in control, but, you know, yeah. at least if you have a, a plan, you, you at least 
if you're in executing that plan, maybe there's a little bit more feel that maybe you can yeah. control something a little bit. Yeah. And that's a good place to be in. Yeah, it's a great place to be in. Hey, Dan, so if people want to follow up and um, they've got some questions for you specifically, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you? Yeah, you, you can find us at thefabricator.com. You know, pretty much all our content ends up there, whether it be our own podcasts or content in the magazines, not only The Fabricator, but The Welder. Mm -hmm. uh, the tube and pipe journal. You can reach me directly at d d a v i s at fmamfg.org. Fabricators and Manufacturers Association just underwent a rebranding. Where you know the FMA has been around 50 years supporting what we call the work lifecycle development process, where we help to encourage younger generations to get involved with manufacturing and metal fabricating with summer camps. Right. And scholarships through our Nuts, Bolts, and Thigmajigs Foundation, trade shows, and publications help to kind of uh, nurture those workers as they kind of progress through their careers. Yeah. So we like to think that we're kind of there for them along the entire journey. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you can also reach out and learn more about FMA through uh, www.fmamfg.org. Okay. If you'd like to follow up uh, there. Yeah, feel free and right. reach out. We always love hearing from the uh, world of uh, metal fabricators. Yeah, well, thanks again for uh, joining me today. And for those of you who've listened in, stay tuned for uh, future episodes, Practical CMO. And hope you enjoyed today's session. It was pretty rich in um, as an overview, but also talking about some specific opportunities in manufacturing. And that's, that's what we're trying to do is give you some practical guidance. So Thanks again, and um, hope your business is growing and, and you're doing well. Bye-bye. Thanks. Never miss an episode. Be sure to look for The Practical CMO in all your favorite podcast apps or on our website, thepracticalcmo.com.